sleep, but I just finished out a great sauna. You got a killer sauna. As the Finnish say, sauna in their backyard. And I'll be here with a cat, several chickens, some crickets or cicadas or something. Got a bunch of fruit trees back here. That's, I, I, well, I got a glass of uh, chilled, uh, cheap chilled red box wine. I know you connoisseurs are snubbing your nose. And a piece of chocolate bun cake. And uh, I'm having a great night. It's a Labor Day weekend show of postcards from Gravelly Beach, and this is number eight. So driving down here today, past uh, signs about Lewis and Clark stuff, and a little bit off the Lewis and Clark trail here, but I busted out a copy of their journal, and I'm going to read what they were doing on the same day of the year, so many years before, and then a little another snippet of Desert Solitaire, and another part of the continuous saga of Uncle Weed and Bob and Otto down to the desert. September 2nd, Monday, 1805. Proceeded up on the creek, proceeded on through thickets in which we were obliged to cut a road over rocky hillsides, where horses were in perpetual danger of slipping to their certain destruction, and up and down steep hills, where several horses fell. Some turned over and others slipped down steep slopes. One horse crippled and two gave out. September 3rd, Tuesday, 1805. Hills high and rocky on each side. In the after part of the day, the high mountains closed the creek on each side and obliged us to take the steep sides of those mountains. So steep that the horses could scarcely keep from slipping down. Several slipped and injured themselves very much. With great difficulty, we made so many miles and encamped on a branch of the creek. We ascended after crossing several steep points and one mountain, but little to eat. Mountains to the east covered with snow. We met with a great misfortune having our last thermometer broken by accident. This day we passed over immense hills and some of the worst roads the horses ever passed. Our horses frequently fell. The snow about two inches deep when it began to rain, which terminated into turned into sleet storm. September fourth, Wednesday, eighteen oh five, a very cold morning, everything wet and frosted ground covered with snow, we ascended a mountain and took a dividing ridge, which we kept for several miles, and fell on the head of a creek which appeared to run the course we wished to go. Pursued our course down the creek to the forks about five miles, where we met a party of the Tishpa Nation of 33 lodges, about 40 men, 400 total, and at least 500 horses. These people received us friendly, threw white robes over our shoulders, and smoked in the pipes of peace. We encamped with them and found them friendly, but nothing but berries to eat, a part of which they gave us. Those Indians are well dressed with skin, shirts, and robes. They are stout and light complected, more so than common for Indians. The chief harangued until late at night, smoking in our pipe, and appeared satisfied. I was the first white man who ever were on the waters of this river. Man, Lewis and Clark did not have the easy path at all. 
Anyway, next up is Edward. I'm going to read from Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, which, as you know, is one of my favorites. This little snippet here really he seems to foretell the future and really shows an incredible perception of, of political uh, science. Well, I guess i got to lead into it a little bit, so I'm going to back up. The value of wilderness, on the other hand, as a base for resistance to centralized domination is demonstrated by recent history. In Budapest and Santo Domingo, for example, popular revolts were easily and quickly crushed because an urbanized environment gives the advantage to the power with the technological equipment. But in Cuba, Algeria, and Vietnam, the revolutionaries, operating in mountain, desert, and jungle hinterlands with the active or tacit support of a thinly dispersed population, have been able to overcome or at least fight to draw official establishment forces equipped with all of the terrible weapons of 20th century militarism. Rural insurrections can then be suppressed only by bombing and burning villages and countryside so thoroughly that the mass of the population is forced to take refuge in the cities, where the people are then policed and if necessary starved in submission. The city, which should be the symbol and center of civilization, can also be made to function as a concentration camp. This is one of the significant discoveries of contemporary political science. How does this theory apply to the present and future of the famous United States of North America? Suppose we were planning to impose a dictatorial regime upon the American people. The following preparations would be essential. First, I must drink some wine. Number one, concentrate the populace and megapolitan masses so that they can be kept under close surveillance and where, in case of trouble, they can be bombed, burned, gassed, or machine gunned with a minimum of expense and waste. Number two, mechanize agriculture to the highest degree of refinement, thus forcing most of the scattered farm and ranching population into cities. Such a policy is desirable because farmers, woodsmen, cowboys, Indians, fishermen, and other relatively self-sufficient types are difficult to manage unless displaced from their natural environment. Number three, restrict the possession of firearms to the police and the regular military organizations. <coughs> cough, cough. Number four, encourage or at least fail to discourage population growth. Large masses of people are more easily manipulated and dominated than scattered individuals. Number five, continue military conscription. Nothing excels military training for creating in young men an attitude of prompt, cheerful obedience to an officially constituted authority. Number six, divert attention from deep conflicts within the society by engaging in foreign wars. Make support of these wars a test of loyalty, hereby exposing and isolating potential opposition to the new order. Wow. Number seven, overlay the nation with a finely re <laughs> reticulated network of communications, airlines, and interstate autobahns. Reticulated? Reticulated? Anyway. Number eight, raise the wilderness. Dam the rivers, flood the canyons, drain the swamps, log the forests, strip mine the hills, bulldoze the mountains. Irrigate the deserts and improve the national parks into national parking lots. Sound familiar at all? Maybe. Hey, so now I'm going to switch over to our third part of Uncle Wee's Red Rock Adventure. Uh, for those of you who are just catching up, Uncle Wee is taking his nephew Bob and Bob's friend Otto camping to southern Utah. They've just arrived and it's campfire time and they're telling stories.
What? You didn't like that one? Uncle Weed teased. Well, here's a good one. An important one, in fact. Uncle Weed sat up to tell the story better and collect his thoughts. Back when I was about your age, I think I was 11, I went with my dad on a trip to a place not too far from here. Our friend Ed and his daughter, who's about my age, came along as well. Before we left the city, we bought an old rubber dinghy and our Navy surplus store, and taking just a couple of bags of gear and the clothes on our back, we pushed off a sandy bank into a peaceful, vibrant river. We floated down this cascading river for about two weeks. Two weeks in a boat with a girl in the same clothes, said the boy. Don't say anything yet, you two. It was amazing, said Uncle Weed. Anyway, every night, whenever we felt like it, we pulled up to a sandy shore or a rocky beach up a side canyon, and we'd throw our sleeping bags down on the ground. My dad would cook up a pot of grub, use plants, roots, berries, whatever he could find around. Grandpa was real good at all that sort of thing, you know, cooking and all. Then Uncle Weed continued. We would lie around the fire and tell about what we'd seen, heard, touched, smelled, and tasted, and thought that day, sort of like what we were doing here. You might think after a couple weeks you'd run out of things to say, but you wouldn't. Those two weeks could have been a thousand. You'd still want more. Every time you'd find a perfect view, you'd turn around and find one twice as stunning. Then you'd turn your head again and find something more breathtaking still. There I was, a youngster, out digging the scenery. While all the other kids went to Disneyland or something, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I couldn't. I learned how important it is to notice every detail possible, to remember the majesty of the earth and respect all living things. There's so much to see and experience, but people still don't notice or even take time to look, and when they do, it's through the window of a car. Well, all the more space for us to roam then, eh? It almost looked like Uncle Weed was crying. Not exactly, but sort of leaking around the ice. Is that where we're going tomorrow or something? The boys figured that any place that got Uncle Weed this emotional had to be quite amazing. I wish we could, but it's closed. It's closed for renovations. How can they close a river? You're teasing again, the boys said. Well, I'll tell you more of the story, said Uncle Weed. Shortly after we finished our adventure, a bunch of government guys came and said, Hey, wow, sure is nice out here and all, but the canyons, all the canyons look the same, and there's plenty of them anyhow. This one would be ideal for our purposes. Barely anyone comes out here anyway. We could probably score some medals and high-paying office jobs for fixing this place up. Uncle Weed continued. So they built a huge concrete plug of a dam. One of the biggest in the world, they were proud to say. They went on to build a matching visitor center, highways and byways, hotels, marinas, liquor stores, bridges, convenience stores, government offices, fast food chains, trailer parks, and eventually a whole town. They called it a National Recreation Area, and they received their shiny medals and increase in dollars. I call it a National Recreation Slum, a filthy bathtub playground for inconsiderate and wealthy to play with expensive polluting toys. These politicians felt it was more important to create electricity to light giant waving clowns and cowboys in Las Vegas and keep all the malls in Phoenix air-conditioned than it is to preserve a national splendor filled with life and history. All in the name of progress. We can't let any any technology pass us by. It ain't worth nothing unless it shows a profit, they said. So they abused it until it did. Now, busloads of people go down and gaze with wonder at this glorious piece of cement and steel. 
buy postcards and motor on to their next stop. I don't know about you guys, but I find it hard to love concrete. Well, that's the third part of Uncle Wee's Red Rock Adventure, man. That kind of ends on kind of a bummer note, man, but we'll see what happens next episode. Um, I'm going to try and do a couple more this weekend because I'm really enjoying it down here. Especially, I, I especially like doing a podcast when I can do it outside, even though it's sometimes a little bit hard to read. Hey, so anyway, that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for that closing music to cue on up. That's the fun of doing them. Do them as they come. Hey, anyway, I'm going to get back to my glass of wine and my peace pipe. Thanks for uh, rolling with me, checking out Lewis and Clark's adventure, hanging with Ed Abbey as he foretells the future. Remember, he was reading that, writing that in 1968. Come back and listen to that again and realize it is 2005. Mm, anything seem creepy to you? And today's podcast, or podcast, as I like to say, was brought to you by the letter E ridiculously high gas prices don't complain to me people I was paying way more than that in Europe and enjoying it that's why you drive small cars that's why you take transit that's why you walk that's why you ride a bike the whole country of the Netherlands does and it works great for them it was also brought to you by cheap red boxed wine Finnish saunas these cool little 12 volt glow in the dark solar powered something or other lamps here in the backyard tapas plaids for dinner constellations twinkling up above me. See you next time on Postcards from Gravelly Beach. This is Devo signing out from PL.